You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The scripture reading this evening comes from 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and that you have given us family instructions to care for our family. We pray that by your word tonight that you might transform us more into your sons and daughters, more into a family that cares for itself as we show the world your good fatherhood towards us. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. How are we doing tonight? I feel like at the end of the service tonight. It's going to be like the last episode of Growing Pains or something. It's like an empty living room. We'll like take one last look and then close the front door. Like a lot of you weren't even born when Mike Seifer was going off of the air, so forgive my 90s references. Uh, Just a heads up uh, where we're headed in the next few weeks, not only just geographically across the street, uh, but next Sunday, our first Sunday uh, at First United Methodist Church, we're going to take a week for a one-off new building, like vision reset a bit. Then we'll have three more Sundays to finish up this book of First Timothy, uh, right before Easter. Then we'll have Easter Sunday, and then the Sunday after Easter, we're going to begin a huge undertaking through the book of Exodus, which I am super pumped about. Yeah, there's some Exodus fans in the house. All right. <laughs> we're Christians. We ought to be fans of all books of the Bible. Anyway, uh, <laughs> We still have a ton of ground to get through in the book of 1 Timothy, though, so let's get after it. This is an odd text that you just heard Tali read for us. To paraphrase one commentator, early church leaders were puzzled how best to serve widows, and Christians have been puzzled by this text about widows ever since. 
There are some oddities in it, aren't there? Like, does Paul want younger widows to remarry or not? He seems to contradict himself at first glance. What does it mean for a widow to be enrolled? Is there a list? What's the list? But we'll hopefully answer those questions as well as indeed having our hearts and minds transformed into more of the heart and mind of Christ tonight. But this confusing passage about widows really doesn't begin until verse 3. Paul doesn't start talking about necessarily widows until then. There are these first two verses which place this text right squarely in the midst of the rest of the larger context of this letter of 1 Timothy. In chapter 3, we saw Paul tell Timothy the major purpose statement of the letter. Remember what that was in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3? Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we've seen the household of God, the the family of God, this theme pop up over and over and over again. And now Paul is just going to keep hammering away at this theme, the implications of the reality of the family of God now throughout the rest of this letter in chapters 5 and 6. So we'll divide our text tonight into two very unbalanced halves of the first two verses, living in the family, and then verses 3 through 16 of caring for the family, living in the family and caring for the family. So, coming right off the heels of the end of chapter 4, where we saw last week Paul encouraged Timothy to not let anyone despise him for his youth. Basically, Paul or Timothy, don't let the elders of this Ephesian church continue to teach false doctrine and you not do anything about it because of your age and their age. Just because you're younger than them, don't let them continue to teach falsely. And so, you could imagine a mid-30s Timothy reading this letter and wanting to just get off the couch and go do something. Go set them straight. He's going to write a blog post or he's going to appear on some cable news channel that, that his video then will go viral on Facebook. It's like, watch Timothy destroy the Ephesian elders or something like that. And so perhaps, knowing that this could be what Paul knows Timothy might be hearing, he then writes... Transitioning, these, are, these numbers aren't here in the original text, but transitioning now to chapter 5, perhaps knowing that he could be wanting to go humiliate these elders, he writes, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Don't forget, Timothy, that all of these other Christians in Ephesus are your family. Don't try to, like, trick yourself, like, make believing that they are your family, like, pretending that they are your family, that, but the reality is that they actually and really are your family. So treat them as such. And so, even as these elders are wrong, they are leading the church astray, how would you confront and correct your dad? Not in a way to score points, not in a way to humiliate him, but with respect and with care. Because of your love for him, you care more about winning him than winning the argument. So treat the fathers of the church like the fathers that they are, even if they are wrong. And in the same way, treat those who are closer to your age, a little bit older perhaps these young men might be than you, a little bit younger some of them might be, but treat them like brothers. 
Like for those of you who have brothers and sisters, you know that your brothers and sisters can perhaps frustrate and annoy you more than any other human on the planet, but there is also no one on the planet whom you love and care and want to protect more than. Just think about how you would react if perhaps the same thing that you're saying or thinking about your brother and sister about the way that they annoy you, if someone else were to say the same thing, you're like, oh no, no, you can't say that, right? Because this is my brother, my sister. So treat the younger men, Timothy, in the exact same way. Don't pretend they are your brothers. They are your brothers. Don't publicly complain about, gossip about your brothers and sisters. And because they are your siblings, don't stomach it when people are bad-mouthing them, when they are slandering them. No, you do not slander my brother, my sister in this way. You are that closely knit. These Christians in Ephesus, they are your brothers and sisters. And Timothy, treat older women as your mothers, especially as we'll see those who are widowed, those who are in need. And how should we treat our mothers? With visits and expected invitations to dinner? To, with phone calls, with invitations to kids' sporting events. You are like actively looking for ways to include them within the life of your family, to include them in sharing memories and experiences. Well, in the same way that you do that with your own mothers, include the older women in the church in the exact same way, especially for those who do not have kids or grandkids or this immediate kind of family and available experiences to be included in. Include the mothers of the church in the exact same way. And then lastly, Timothy, treat the younger women as sisters. With this last caveat, in all purity. So if you'll allow me a couple of minutes here, this verse has shaped mine and many of our thinking around here and how we think about dating. So here's a very short version of that argument based on this verse that Paul gives to Timothy. In the Bible, not just in this verse, but in the Bible there are, we see and can observe three categories of male and female relationships. The first category that we can see is the family relationship. That is a father and daughter or a mother and son or sister and brother or cousins perhaps. And in this kind of family relationship, there is to be no kind of sexual activity. This is something that we all just intuitively know. We don't need the Bible to tell us that. That's the first category, the family relationship. The second category that we see of male-female relationships within the Bible is the marriage relationship. And with the, within the context of marriage, sexual activity, sex is not only just permissible, but it is commanded, 1 Corinthians 7. And while we don't have time to unpack this further tonight, sex isn't just a good safeguard for marriage, but it is a shadow, and it points us to the beauty and the fullness of the gospel. It's a glorious thing. So we're good so far. First category, family relationship, no sex. Marriage relationship, lots of sex. Good. And then third and last, the third category that we have is the neighbor relationship. This is every other relationship that you have with any other human who is not your family or who is not your spouse. Again, we don't have time, the time needed tonight to devote to the Bible's unpacking of sex, but we should say now that sex should be saved for and only for marriage. 
The problem is that too often we limit our understanding of sexual immorality to just sexual intercourse. Think about a past president who said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. So we might say, we might argue that if an activity is sexual, it is to be abstained from while in the neighbor relationship. But now the question then becomes, what is an activity that is sexual? Well, 1 Timothy 5.2. Paul tells Timothy to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So Paul here is linking together the familial treatment of the opposite sex with sexual purity. If Timothy is committed to living a life of absolute purity with the women in his church, those who are in the neighbor relationship, those who are not his family or those who are not his spouse, then his conduct toward the women in his church must be carried out within a familial framework of purity. So what? Well, there are ways in which you could entirely and appropriately hold your mother or your father's hand. You could hold your brother or your sister's hand. But there is a line that you and anyone else who was in the room would know that you are crossing intuitively because it is inappropriate. There's a line even which certainly a kiss on your mother's cheek then turns very strange and very weird for everyone who is around. Why is that weird? Why is it inappropriate? Well, I think because it is sexual in nature. Stay with me here. If sexual immorality was limited to sexual intercourse, then it would be totally appropriate for you to find me in the corner kissing some woman who is not Marcy. There should be nothing wrong with that, right? No, you all know that there is something very wrong with that. My wife is shaking her head. Uh, there is a way in which I could cuddle with another woman who is not my wife, and you would all know that it is weird because it is not my wife because I think it is something about it is sexual in nature. It is not sexual intercourse. So here's the point. It's possible for an activity to be less than sexual intercourse and still it be sexual in nature. So... If a man would not feel comfortable engaging in a particular action with his sister, with his mother, because doing so would be sexually inappropriate, then that action is sexual in nature and should be avoided in the nature or in the neighbor relationship. Meaning, anyone who is not your husband or wife, everyone who is your neighbor, you should avoid that kind of activity. What kind of church did you guys walk into tonight? Uh, this is. <laughs> This is a very countercultural thing, I understand. Uh, regardless, though, of what we may call another person for whom we have feelings, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, an intentional courting partner or something, I don't know, we are still bound by the same purity guidelines for our neighbor, for our family. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And again, Paul isn't saying here, hey, guys, like squint really hard and pretend they're your sisters and then you won't want to kiss them or something. That's, no. He's saying they are your sisters. They are your brothers. This is not something that you should squint and pretend to be true. This is actual reality now. 
How does that change and affect the way that you care for one another? How does that change and affect the way that you interact with one another or date one another or even think about purity, what it, purity might mean with one another? All right, that was a six or seven minute version of a conversation that should be about three or four hours or three or four years. And we'd love to have that conversation with you. So uh, please do come up after the service, talk to us, schedule a coffee, send us an email, schedule 10 or 20 coffees with us. We'd, we'd love that. Uh, and I do, I'm completely aware of how startlingly ridiculous uh, some of what I just said might sound to our 2019 American ears. So we'd love to continue this conversation with you over the next many months or years. But let's keep moving to other members of the family and how Timothy is to care or better care for them. And that is the widows of the family of God. We've seen living in the family. And now let's move our attention to caring for the family. Okay, so before getting into this very difficult section, it seems that Paul is trying to answer several different questions that were perhaps swirling around within the Ephesian church. Like, which widows are truly in need? What, what is the responsibility of immediate family and other relatives for caring for widows? How can the church determine which widows qualify for being included on their list of provision? How should the church deal with and care for widows who are not on that list? And what is this list? So first of all, while becoming a widow or a widower is undoubtedly a tragic reality for any person in any age in any time of human history, female widows in the first centuries or in the first century were particularly vulnerable. Now, without their husband and with his more significant opportunities for income, becoming a widow was often a sentence of destitution for the rest of this woman's life. When we thought about deacons in chapter 3, we remembered back to Acts 6, where there was a church-run feeding program for widows. Because most of these widows wouldn't have even had the means to buy food for themselves. In the Old Testament, Jewish law obliged a brother of a guy who just died to marry this new widow. Not because they were into like incest or like a weird wife-sharing thing. Quite the opposite. This practice called leveret marriage the practice of when your brother dies, you now marry his widowed wife. This was a way to ensure that the most vulnerable in the community would be cared for and provided for as still very valuable members of the family of God. Leveret marriage was not a thing, though, by this time in the first century. For one thing, Christians were not bound by the Old Testament law any longer. More on that as we get to Exodus over the many months coming in increasing numbers, many of these early Christians were not Jews with the uh, law background, the cultural and tradition background of many of these Jewish folks. Marriage by Jesus' time had thankfully returned to the more creational norm of one man and one woman. So while the law of Moses was no longer binding for the people of God to care for widows through leveret marriage, how would the law of Christ, how would this law compel the new covenant people of God to care for widows, to care for the most vulnerable. So Paul here says in verse 3, to honor widows who are truly widows. I don't think he's meaning that there are some people who are running around in Ephesus, some ladies who are pretending that their husbands have died. And now Timothy is to go out and find by death certificate or something those who are truly widows. 
I know the context for the rest of this paragraph shows that he is meaning those who are truly alone, those who are not able to provide for themselves, those who have no family to care for them. While the bulk of this section is for Timothy to help sort out how he should think about the church's position and obligation for widows, verses 4 and, verses, verses four and 8, they come as a pretty stinging rebuke that Timothy is probably meant to pass along to the family, especially the children of these, some of these widows in Ephesus. So he says in verse 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. Now, this becomes a more nuanced application for us today in 2019. In these days, in Paul's day, there would have been more multi-generational homes. It would have been a common expectation for parents and then grandparents to live with their children and grandchildren until the day of their death, or they might even die in this house. In the Roman world, if you survived infancy and then made it through your teenage years, you could expect to live to about the ripe old age of 60. Some later than that, many less than that. Today, while our older generations have access to Medicaid and to Medicare, which eliminates some of the needs that Paul is commanding that families and the church ought to provide, medical care has made it to where we should plan now to actually live well into our 80s, sometimes into our 90s. On top of that, for many of us, our parents live in altogether different parts of the country, much less in the same home. We don't all live and die in the same town and in the same home like most humans throughout history have. Because of this, many, if not most, of our culture's older generations feel that they are often a burden to their families. And they would almost rather just stay completely out of the way. While there isn't anything inherently wrong about retirement or nursing homes, oftentimes, because of increasing medical needs. More available and round-the-clock care is needed for some older folks. Not to mention that, like many of you, I've gotten to hang out with lots of folks who would actually prefer to live in a place where they can hang out with more folks their age round the clock. Not always, but often. But for many of us for whom these kinds of plans and decisions are not very far away, while elder parents may feel like a burden, the children or grandchildren should never be the ones who are making them feel this way. Paul tells them to make some return to their parents. It is the parents, it is the grandparents who have gotten the younger generations to where they are today. While all of us have different contexts and different levels of parental involvement and care and provision in our lives, just think about how much time and money your parents have put into you, have invested into your lives. Even if minimal, minimal amounts, for most, not all, but for most who have grown up with like 18 years of free food and free rent, not free to them, but free to you. And then for others of you, You've had years of free sports and free school and free extracurricular activities and free parenting and free discipleship. 
and on and on and on and on. But, like that AARP billboard, roles change. Los roles cambian. You've seen this? Yeah, that gringo just said that. But it changes. Roles change. The, the ones who are doing the provision, the hands-on care, then, as roles change, then need the hands-on provision and care. And for younger generations to have taken and taken and taken from the older generations and then not be willing to give back or feel annoyed by or put out by the reality that they need to give back, Paul says this makes them worse than unbelievers. Even non-Christian folks take care of their parents. The Greek and the Roman culture of the day would have honored their elders and would have cared for their parents. And if you, the church, neglect the weak, neglect the vulnerable, neglect those who need provision in your midst, then what kind of a gospel are you saying and claiming to believe in? You have denied that gospel, the gospel of the one who is able and capable to provide and, pr and care for the weak and the vulnerable has done so for you. Has that story actually invaded your life and transformed your life so that now you look to care for and provide for the weak and the vulnerable in your midst? Maybe not. If all you're thinking about is your own financial plans, the schedule of Netflix that might get interrupted by hanging out with your parents or your grandparents or the vacations that you might not be able to take. Instead, verse 4, Learn what it means to show godliness. Work out your religion, your faith in the gospel by caring for your parents. I called my mom yesterday in Texas. I was writing some of this yesterday morning and I just felt guilty. <laughs> uh, sorry, mom, who's listening now on the podcast. Uh, now you know why I called you. Uh, I call my mom I call my folks, but I don't enough. I don't enough. Now, I've spent a few minutes on these verses concerning children and grandchildren because of the age of our church. We are a young church, and many more of us are children and grandchildren than our grandparents. But the real emphasis on this text is on those who are actually alone, who are truly widows, and this is how, and how the church is to care for them. Okay, it could be that this enrolling thing, this list, is just a list of widows who are to be cared for. Like in Acts 6, this enrolled list exists to make sure that no widow falls through the cracks, that no one is forgotten with food and provision. After all, they don't have kids to care and provide for them. And while undoubtedly that's true, and the church was and should be ongoingly, administratively caring for people who need help, it does seem strange that Paul would make like stringent character qualifications to receive food and care. Did you have this question? Like, wait, we should only take food to those who are like upright and noble? And then even age, what about like a 58-year-old widow? Should we not care for her? Should Timothy and the Ephesian church let her starve? Well, here's what I think is going on in verses 9 through 16. 
The predominant history of interpretation on this text is that of these widows, widows in Ephesus who are being set apart not only for care, not only for provision, but actually for service. They're not being set apart in like an official office of the church, like we saw elders and deacons in chapter 3, but they are being set apart as being a committed and godly widow. Her primary job, this widow, is to be, uh, her primary role is that of prayer. She is to set her life apart for prayer and as a model of godliness for the rest of the community. Verse 10, she is to have a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality, if she has washed the feet of the saints, if she has cared for the afflicted, if she has devoted herself to every good work. It seems that Timothy is to enroll these 60-year-old women to be set apart, not only for care and provision, but to be models of godliness and for prayer for the Ephesian church. This would seem to relieve some of the tension that comes with the younger widows thing. At first, it seems in verses 11 and 12 that Paul is saying that if younger women want to remarry, they are just being led by their desire. And then, if they do get remarried, they are heaping condemnation on themselves for abandoning their faith. But then, in verse 14, he turns right around and he says he wants them to get remarried. Well, if they are enrolled as a widow, as a set-apart widow who is a model of godliness, who has committed herself to a life of prayer and to a life of care for the church, and then she leaves that role because of her desire to get remarried, Paul is saying it's just better that she didn't make that initial vow, that commitment to the church in this kind of role in the first place. It's better to just give her some time and wait until she's about 60 where she has shown herself to not have this desire for remarriage. And if not, if she's just younger, if she's younger than that, it's just better for her to get remarried. By the way, this passage is the groundwork for what would later become a convent. Did you know that? I learned that this week. Of widows being set apart, not only in role, but in geography, put in the same building to commit themselves to a life of prayer. But the age requirement of 60 through the years and the centuries got more relaxed and got more relaxed. And then you've got young, romantic Julie Andrews hanging around a convent and, and the nuns all wondering how you solve a problem like her, right? Well, I'll tell you how you solve a problem like Maria. She should have just never been a problem in the first place. Verse 14, I would have younger widows marry. She's under 60, just get married. Bear children, manage their household. She should have just married Captain Von Trapp in the first place. She should have never made a vow of celibacy in the first place. And then it wouldn't have been a problem for anyone. She's still young. She is in a better place to serve the community of God, the family of God, by caring for her own family, by caring for her own young children. Nevertheless, there is still an invaluable role and ministry for older widows to partake in. That of prayer, that of service. And the church should then commit itself to care for all of these widows, all of the widows' needs, when they are committing themselves to this role. That's not to say that the church should not concern themselves with the needs of others, but that there is is actually a place of discernment and of wisdom needed and of giving 
of the church's funds. If someone has available help outside of the church, if the person has the ability to work, 2 Thessalonians 3, or if the person has outside help available, then these should first be utilized. That said, we do understand the complexities of modern societies and modern economies. So we do have a line in our budget set for benevolence, a line in our budget to help get folks back on their feet, but not in an ongoing, all needs provided for kind of way. And our modern government and economy with Medicare and Medicaid and so many other governmental systems have made it such that an American church likely does not need to care for all of a widow's physical needs in the same kind of way that it would have needed to in the first century and for many centuries following. But the government is not able to do it all and nor should it. And we are the family of God. We want our church to be a place of warmth and of welcome, not just for 60-year-old widows and widowers, but also for single moms. And for those who do feel unprovided for and uncared for. We're actually going to do, to just piggyback an entire sermon next week on this. As we move to a new building and we think towards the hospitality of that building but also the hospitality that we want our church to be moving towards the city with. So more on that next week. But let us first learn to show godliness to our own household. Yes, the households of our immediate families, but also to the household of God. We are family here. So who in your GC needs care? Who in your small group needs care? Even just relationally. Who should be spending more time at your dinner table? Who should be getting more phone calls and text message check-ins throughout the week? We are not a pretend family. We are not squinting and pretending that that person is my sister or my cousin or my mom. We are family. So how does that change and affect the way that we care for one another? How does it change and affect the way that we interact with each other, date, and move toward marriage with one another? But how does that also change and affect the way that we care and move toward funerals with one another? God help us. Might the blood of Christ continue to shape us, to transform us even further into the very family, the household of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we do ask that you would affect our vision. We pray that you would sh shape the way that we think of one another, less and less that we think of ourselves as the main character of our own story that everyone else in this church and everyone else in this world revolves around, but that you would be more and more the hero and the protagonist of our story, that we revolve around you. And just as you have saved and redeemed me, you have done the same for others. You have not called individuals to yourself, but you have called a people. You have redeemed a family. You have redeemed your sons and daughters. So help us to love you. Help us to love others. Give us passion for you and compassion for others. Help us to not only see needs of others that we might currently be blind to or unaware of, but give us the desire and the care to begin more and more meeting those needs. 
Help us to live lives shaped by your love for us and that it might be moved into love for others. Help us, we pray, that the world might see our love, might know the glory and the love of our Father who is in heaven. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.